You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. John DeYard. Welcome to the Life Spa podcast. And today we have a really special guest, the author of a book called The Whole Body Microbiome by Dr. Brett Finlay. Uh, he's a uh, really distinguished professor at the Michael Smith Laboratories at the University of British Columbia. Uh, he's a leading researcher on bacterial infection. He has published over uh, 500 scientific studies on, micro, on microbes. Um, he's the co-founder of a biotech companies called Commence, Vedanta, and Microbiome Insights. Dr. Finlay is also an officer of the Order of Canada, which is the highest civilian uh, Canadian civilian recognition that you can get in Canada. He's also the co-author of a book for kids called Let Them Eat Dirt. And uh, Dr. Finlay, welcome. This book is quite amazing. Uh, I, I couldn't put it down. There, there's so much inc- uh, research and just one amazing scientific fact after another, after another, after another. Thank you so much. Uh, welcome. In Ayurvedic medicine, the, they discovered and talked about invisible microbes thousands of years ago. They called them crimi. And they also, what was interesting, they said, well, we, they knew that these bugs that they couldn't see could cause imbalances and they were linked to hygiene. They can cause, you know, all types of imbalances and health concerns. But they didn't suggest that we kill those bugs. They actually suggested we should alter the environment of the host and also see if you can change and alter the actual microbe itself versus just going ahead and killing it. So I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, what is the importance of maintaining a healthy intestinal environment for the health of your microbes? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's it's real fun to be here. I think, and I'm glad you like the book. (laughs) It is full of facts. And I felt like you when I was writing it, I could not believe all this stuff. Again, like you, I work in this field. I thought I knew this stuff, but I found so many amazing things about the interface between microbes and human physiology that I didn't know. So yeah, environment. Whenever I hear the word environment, I now think the word microbiome because we see the world through this veneer of microbes, really that they're sort of coating us everywhere and they translate our microbial, the outside world into us. So when you eat, for example, via the food, um, even touching things, there's a thin layer of microbes between your skin and whatever you're touching. And, and, and so I, I find it amazing. They knew about 2,500 years ago. I remember when Anthony Van Leeuwenhoek supposedly first found them in the late 60s, 1600s, he called them animacules. And what he did is he swabbed out his mouth and then held it under the microscope, the very first microscope that anyone ever built. And he saw all these animacules. And he said the most amazing thing, he said, there's more animacules in my mouth than people living in the Netherlands, which is where he was based at the time. So even then he realized there's all these living things in here. People thought it was nuts that we have all these living things. And as you know, there's as many microbes in and on us as there are human cells. And there's a hundred times more microbial genes and human genes in and on us. So when we're looking at each other, we think we're seeing humans, but we're not. We're actually seeing this carrier vessel for microbes in the form of Homo sapiens and all the microbes in and on us. So uh, environment plays a huge role. That's how you shape your microbes. That's where you get them from. That's what's going to change them. So yeah, environment's huge in the microbe world. Should the bugs in our gut change seasonally? Well, um, yeah, I mean, the bugs in the gut change anytime you change what you're eating. And, and, and I think another important concept to remember is you think, you know, when you're eating food that's feeding you, 
ironically, you're actually feeding the microbes that are feeding you. And, you know, they say you are what you eat. I would say, well, your microbes are what you eat and then they affect who you are kind of thing. Um, and the other thing to remember is most of the food we eat, you actually are not capable of breaking it down. You can't digest complex cellulose and things that are in plants. We rely on the microbes to do that. We know they're going to be there, so we don't bother having the enzymes to do it and let the microbes do the, heart, the heavy lifting for that. So, if, yeah, microbes change in the gut depending on, as you say, whatever you put into your mouth. Um, you get some microbes through inoculation, but not all that many. Um, but they, they, they change in their proportions once they're inside you, depending on what you eat. And so, you know, if you go on a diet, you could, your microbes, you'll see shifts in, in your microbes within a day or two. And experiment I always tell my students to do is go to, go to Dublin, Ireland and drink Guinness for three days in a row and you'll see the end results coming out the other end. Your microbes are shifted because your feces is different. They love that experiment. Um, so <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they change depending on, on, on the environment. Um, but all that being said, you know, when you acquire your microbes early in birth, they bounce around the first couple of years. But then, you know, by the time you're a teenager, the microbes that are with you are pretty constant for pretty much your entire life until post 65, then they fall off a cliff. And that's the whole book story you will probably get into. Um, yeah. Yeah. Then, I mean, yes, they change, but they don't, but they actually stay pretty, pretty similar. And you, you have a unique set of microbes that no one else in the world has. Um, there's no one bug that's record that's, that's in, in all people, for example. So yeah, you want to talk personalized medicine. I thought we think we're talking microbes, not 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 human genetics, because we're virtually identical, but our microbes are different. So that's what's the difference between you and I. It's our microbes. <laughs> As we age, our microbiome declines. So how do we stop that? Is that even possible? Yeah, the fountain of youth. <laughs> we're all on it. Please, we're not getting any other. At least slow it down. Yeah. How about just slow well, it down? That's not well, so so let, let, let's go back to basics that really they say that, you know, healthy aging is about 25, 20 to 25% genetics and about 75, 80% environment. And I get excited yeah. when I hear that. That means that, yeah, you can blame your parents for 20% of your problems, but the other 80% are really self-made. And, um, and the other thing is that if you're at the age of 11, if you're 11 years old, you stayed that way, you'd live to be over a thousand years. And that, then every eight years thereafter, your, your um, chance of dying doubles. So every time you survive another eight years, you've now increased your chance of dying by 100%. So, so really, you know, aging is a long, slow process in that sense from age 11 on. Um, but that being said, I, I think there's a lot of hope to the idea that, you know, by changing our environment and our microbes correspondingly, you can actually add, thought you could add to easily add a decade or more just to healthy living, depending on, on your, on your lifestyles. And there's a lot of that that indicate that. And of course, microbes are at the center of that, you know, you'll hear about diet and exercise and stuff. That's because it influences microbes. So I think, you know, environment's a huge thing. And, um, Really, when you're 65 and over, I, I jokingly said your microbes fall off a cliff. They do get different. They, they become very different. And what happens is they become more what we call inflammatory. So um, they're causing more inflammation in the body. And ironically, another thing that happens is your gut gets more permeable post 65. So more microbes seep through. And if more inflammatory microbes seep through, you trigger more inflammation in the body. Now, this is good for fighting off infections, but this is terrible for aging. This causes tissue damage. And they even have a term for it, they call, they, they call it inflammaging. Um, so it's this chronic low-gate inflammation. And that ironically then causes tissue damage. And that seems to cause, and then you pick your aging disease, whatever organ you want. And when I wrote this book, I could not believe they all came to the same conclusion. 
that you know it's this low-grade inflammation that affects you know how um, the all the different aging processes. And the best indicator of how long you're going to live is not how old you are; it's what the level of inflammatory cytokines in. If you're very inflamed, you're not going to live long, kind of thing. And just a here, here's the thought in youth hope. They've only done it in mice so far, but if you take um, if you take old mice um, feces, put it in young mice, they die faster. But more excitingly, if you take young mice feces, put it in old mice, the inflammation goes down and they live longer. Now, no one's done this to people. I'm not saying go and get a transplant from a, a fecal transplant from a 20 year old, but you can see where this can go, that we might actually be able to influence the whole aging process by sort of dampening down this inflammation, which is microbes are mediating. So one of the concepts you talk about in the book is that that bacteria uh, can irritate and damage the, the lining of the intestinal tract, the mucous membrane lining. And these bacteria produce lipopolysaccharides, which are inflammatory inside, you know, on the, in the lymphatic system and on the other side of the gut wall. Um, you know, it, it, is it possible for us to heal and repair the intestinal lining and support a healthier stable of microbiome or microbes? That's a concept. And there are some microbes that seem more, yeah, that, so, when you think of microbes in the gut, you think of all these bugs sidled right up against the gut cells. There's actually this mucus barrier, as you say, where there's really sort of, it's, it's, a, it's a neutral zone, shall we say, where there's not really cells or bugs, there's a few that are there. And, and you know, when you lose that mucus thickness, um, really things get worse. So, so I think you're right. There are some bugs that seem to increase the mucus thickness. So you could think of those things as repairing it. Um, other bugs chew on mucus. It's a really good carbohydrate source. And, and so, but we, we're certainly not there yet. We cannot um, suddenly repair all these holes, but I think the concept is valid. It also holds true for the oral, um, oral gingival health kind of thing. So, you know, if you have poor oral health, these microbes will seep through and they will then trigger, you know, inflammatory reactions that way. And so one of the things we say in the book is, you know, brush your teeth three times a day. If you do that, that'll drop your rate of Alzheimer's by about 50%. So that's a profound statement. Why does brushing teeth affect Alzheimer's, which is a brain disease? And so it's back to the inflammation story that if you don't brush your teeth, the bugs seep through the holes in your mouth, they trigger low-grade inflammation, which then causes tissue damage, and the case in the brain, which then leads to Alzheimer's. So, you know, if you remember anything from this, from this podcast, you know, just, just make sure you have good oral hygiene and brush your teeth. People say, what about flossing? There's no doubt. I can't answer that. They didn't do that experiment. But yeah, the whole idea that, that you know, keep the microbes out, actually, it, it, keep them out and keep them, and the ones that get in, make them good ones and keep them good ones. So don't get the inflammatory ones. That, that Those two combinations should, in theory, lead to a significant longer and healthier life. There's a certain uh, microbe you talk about called Streptococcus mutans, which is linked to Alzheimer's and dementia and heart disease, correct? Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. Other inflammatory bugs will seep through too. Um, the gram negatives, the LPS producing ones, the inflammatory ones too. But, so, yeah. but there are also probiotics you talk about in the book that can actually help support a healthy uh, oral hygiene and fight against some of these bad bacteria that, that kind of proliferate inside of your mouth, correct? Yeah, very much so. There's oral probiotics and there's probiotic gum that you can get. So you chew on this and supposedly leaves What's really neat, when you go to the dentist and some, sometimes they do what's called an acid wash. So they clean your teeth and wash an acid and gets it really clean. So that kills all the microbes. Ironically, so on your teeth surface is a whole layer of microbes, one adhering to another built up, kind of like these various stages of microbes. When you get an acid wash and get them cleaned, you're back to square zero. So the order of who's gonna to adhere to who depends on who sticks first. 
And depending which one sticks first, you will get a whole different order of microbes stuck to your, stuck to your teeth. Um, so yeah, the oral microbes, one thing I learned is, um, you know, don't, don't gargle and Listerine kind of, you know, the, the mouthwashes kind of thing. They actually don't do things a good job. What they do is they actually destroy a lot of the good microbes. So then the bad microbes can then crawl in. And so um, mouthwash and stuff is actually not all that good um, in terms of your oral microbes. Same as smokers, they have um, more detrimental microbes, shall we say, in their mouth that could then you know, seep into the body and cause problems. Can you tell us how the microbes are linked to accelerated aging? Right, I think the, the, the biggest general theme is as we've already been discussing that if microbes become more inflammatory to, uh, to activate the host immune system, and also if they get into your body more, those two things coupled seem to be the general mechanisms of how they precipitate aging. Now, of course, there's many more specifics like, you know, cardiovascular disease. We can talk about that, how the microbes influence red meat breakdown and, and, and atherosclerosis. That's a different mechanism. But I think the most general theme is, um, you know, it, it's through these having more inflammatory um, bacteria that are getting into the body more as you age. And, you know, just, just to give you a really good lifestyle example, there's a book called The Blue Zones, which there's five areas in the world where people live for a long, long time. And Dan Butner, the guy that wrote this book, studied these people. And I went back and actually reread that book and put it in the filter of microbes. So what does it take to live a long, healthy life? Um, the first one is diet. So you don't want to eat a lot of red meat, a lot of white sugar and stuff. And so some of these blue zones are like in the Mediterranean. So that's a Mediterranean diet. There's Okinawa, Japan, that's fish and rice and healthy things. Costa Rica, rice and beans kind of thing. The one interesting place is Loma Linda, California. I say, well, why does Loma Linda, like what's in Loma Linda, California? That's home of Big Macs, right? Um, turns out many are Seventh-day Adventists there. So, so the religion says you shall be a vegetarian. So they decrease the red meat. So diet's really important. Um, next one is the environment and, um, they live in multi-generational communities. You know, there's little grandkids playing with great grandfathers and dogs racing through the home. So these elder people are exposed to young microbes. Unlike what we do in elder care is we keep the kids away. I mean, I think we should have babies and dogs roaring through elder care places, you know, as much as possible, give them young microbes kind of thing. So you want the environment um, and sort of the community kind of thing. Um, and exercise is important. Now we all know exercise is good for your heart, but it turns out exercise is really beneficial for pushing your microbes to a much healthier anti-inflammatory kind of combination. And so, and it doesn't have to be marathon running. I mean, just toddling down to the town square to play cards with your buddies or whatever, it, it pushes the microbes towards an anti-inflammatory type thing. And the last one is stress. So Costa Rica, you know, chill out kind of thing. It's an easygoing place, Mediterranean. Stress is really bad for your microbes. It too pushes them towards this really much more inflammatory type um, um, combination. And so, you know, the stressful lives that we're leading are probably not good in terms of the microbes that, that we're doing, that we should, you know, chill out a bit and enjoy life a bit more. And that actually will, will help you live longer through your microbes because they're less anti-inflammatory. So I think that's the general theme that I've been able to put together about aging is, um, you know, this, you get more inflammatory microbes that really basically make the aging process go faster. So I had Dan Dudner on this podcast. Oh, and, excellent, uh, excellent, yeah. And uh, he also talks about red wine and how all these uh, blue zone cultures and centenarian cultures have that little bit of red wine. And I'm wondering if uh, what the impact of that is on the microbiome. Yeah, so of course that was a major thing we did look at in the book. And um, 
I mean, there's no doubt a glass of red wine a day it seems to be good for you. It's better than a Mediterranean diet. There's some studies about how it seems to promote beneficial microbes. They're not all that good, the studies. Um, I think the message is mixed right now. I think there's no doubt a glass of red wine is okay for you, but um, how it actually works, um, of course, there's the antioxidant theory type thing. Um, red wine right. seems to be better than white wine and whiskey and uh, hard liquor seem to be further down on the list could be good for you. Um, but there hasn't been overwhelming studies about, you know, red wine and is it really does push you to good microbes or not. I think that's still debatable scientifically. You also talk about topical probiotics and the effect of that putting probiotics on your skin can have. I thought that was really exciting research. Yeah, a little bit. Um, it's still not fully developed science, I would say, but you know, we know that there's just a layer of microbes on your skin. Um, they're more prevalent in the moist areas like armpits and groin than there are, say, on your forearm. But the microbes on your right hand are quite different than the ones on your left hand because you know you I don't know, scratch your head with one hand and pick your cell phone up with the other kind of thing. So there is a uh, we tend to forget there's a whole layer of microbes on the skin. And one of, one of their jobs to do is to prevent nasty microbes from coming in. So, you know, if you're scrubbing your hands 10 times a day, you see this in, in medical workers who have to wash their hands a lot. They tend to get a lot of skin infections because they've washed off all the good microbes, for example. So, you know, don't take 20 showers a day. The microbes in your skin are actually doing something. So the idea is, could you then maybe add good microbes, beneficial microbes to this and um, they've had some interesting results regarding sunburns and um, sun is the worst thing you can do for your skin. It basically breaks down the skin and gives you wrinkles and things. And so some of these microbes, I learned they, they would, I didn't know how they did the experiments. They basically take the buttocks of people which haven't seen a lot of sun and they will put a patch on one and then shine a UV light on in the other and that's the zones they test. And they found that several of these seem to have um, um, sort of um, sun, um, sun protection type effects and things. Um, so yeah, I, 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 there, there's not real strong evidence regarding skin probiotics. Um, there are for skin diseases and things, um, psoriasis and stuff on probiotics work, but it, it's still early days in that sense. And, and the area I really wanted to find microbes is for receding hairlines and baldness. I was really hoping to give them not losing my hair, you know, maybe, maybe there's bugs that could do this. I learned all sorts of baldness, but I could not find any connections to the microbes um, and, and going gray and things. So, so skin's an up and coming area. Um, it's less studied than the gut microbiome. And so we'll see where it goes. And in one study, I thought you mentioned if you put a probiotic called Staph epidermidis on your skin, the science shows it was actually very effective for wrinkles. Is that correct? It does, preliminary. I mean, it's early studies. Um, I have not seen any, I haven't seen it commercialized. It's not creamy and go out and get and pour Staph Epi all over right. you. Because Staph Epi can cause infections too, so you gotta watch that. Um, and then in the mouse model, it caused really nice fur and things like this, so um, enhanced it. So there, there's, there's hope there, but um, it's not a product yet. It's a thing of the future, I think. And you also mentioned that taking Lactobacillus um, plantarum, another probiotic, if you take that internally, that the studies show that that actually helps to moisturize your skin. So there is some interesting science I'd love to hear you talk about with regard to the effectiveness of these probiotics for your skin. That's correct. And um, how it works, we have no idea. So you swallow this bug and how does that affect the skin moisture? But yeah, and also... Now that too enhance the fur of mice and seem to improve their, their skin and things. Um, yeah, but how it all works and it's a mystery and it's an, you know, it's a pit, one paper, but is this real and is there a product to come? Um, 
I mean, the whole problem with yeah. Mike Bonfield is still really new and it's really exciting, but it's still a bit of a frontier. And so a lot of things are still being sorted out that we don't know fully yet. And, but I, I mean, you know, 10 years ago, you never think of swallowing a bug to improve your skin moisturizing, right? But now that we've seen the support, I'm sure people are looking at it and we'll sort it out. <laughs> What's your take on these companies that take a sample uh, of your microbiome and, they, and then they prescribe a, a supplement package of probiotics for you specific to your microbiome? Uh, my honest take is that it's got a long ways to go before it's really, you know, useful. Um, you know, probiotics, they're not going to do you any harm, right? That's by definition. So you can, you, we, you can take a probiotic, like taking probiotics, that's fine. But the bigger question is, is it going to do you any good or not? And that's where the arguments come. Now, the approval for probiotics is not through like, like an FDA-regulated drug. So it doesn't have to go through the hard clinical um, trials that drugs do. So you can, so they're, they're not regulated by the stringent FDA rule claims and things of what it does and doesn't do. There, there is, a, it just, if you Google the word probiotic chart, there's some, some really, um, both in the US and Canada, there's a, basically it's called probiotic chart. And it's a list of all the probiotics that are out there. And more importantly is it's, it's, it's list, what's the clinical evidence that it's being tried in a double blind placebo control trial. And what you find is that uh, there are some, um, there's a few that work for what's called antibiotic associated diarrhea. So if you take antibiotics, you have diarrhea, there's some that work there. There's um, one that works for C. difficile, um, a, a, a yeast that works for that. I, there's a couple others. So there is some hints they work. But the analogy I give, it's kind of like, okay, I need a new pair of runner shoes. So you walk into a, into a sports store and there's runners and tennis shoes and court shoes and hiking shoes. And there's walls full of this. And you don't just grab any old pair, take it and say, oh, that'll work now. Because um, so probiotics are very tailored. So my, my initial take on probiotics right now, and the other final thing about probiotics is that the ones you're taking, they're not meant to live in the gut. So these things like lactobacillus and, and um, bifidobacterium, these are vaginal inhabitants. Now the vagina is a lot of oxygen and low pH. The gut is no oxygen and very high pH. So it's kind of like dumping a penguin in the middle of the Sahara Desert and asking it to live, it doesn't. So that's why you take the 10 billion bugs a day because they just wash through you. So all that being said, rather negative, is I think there's a huge future in next-gen probiotics, probiotics 2.0. I think that, and there are companies already working towards this where they take a mixture of 10, 12 gut microbes. They know that this community is from the gut, it's going back into the gut, it has a defined biochemical output and for a particular thing. And there's companies that are now doing this, they're in phase two and three trials, going through the FDA as, as a drug. So this drug will be a mixture of 10 or 12 microbes and then it can be used for, for these diseases. And that's where I think we're gonna see a whole new world of really useful probiotics. You, you'll be taking them for a particular condition that they, we know they're gonna work. And um, that's where I'm very optimistic. And I think um, it will really change the whole probiotic game because right now it's a bit of a mess. There's a lot of discussion about colonizing versus transient probiotics. Colonized meaning ones that adhere to your intestinal tract, as transient ones being ones that kind of go right through you when they seem to work. Can you comment on the difference between the two and are there ways to help get these probiotics to stick around? Yeah, and, that, and for a reason they're taking, I mean, um, many of these probiotic companies, they have a bifidobacterium or lactobacillus and they send it to every researcher and they give them $30,000 to see does it work in your system. They're, they're looking for things for that bug. I think the new approach is what bugs do you need to, to have a particular effect, make some anti-inflammatory things called short-chain fatty acids or something, and this collection of 12 micro. 
in a lot of the cases, what they're doing now is they actually have to treat a bit with an antibiotic to get rid of them and then put these in to then, then allow the, the, the new formation of this colony um, to actually let them adhere because they can't kick the other ones out until you do that. And they're seeing a lot of really nice results in that, say inflammatory bowel disease and C. diff and the other type things. So like in inflammatory bowel disease, your gut is on fire and it's full of all these really nasty bugs, shall we say. And so, um, you know, to, what do you do to put, the, it's better if you put the fire out. So you basically, um, you know, come in with anti-inflammatories or something and maybe an antibiotic and then come in with this new um, community of 10, 12 bugs or whatever that can then actually reestablish a whole new ecosystem because it's hard to push the ecosystems without putting the fire out in the first place. So that's kind of the concepts they're using in the future. So there's no room for new probiotics to, to infiltrate your microbiome because it's like all, it's a space occupied situation, right? There's no room, right? So if you're going to add new bugs, you got to get rid of some other bugs to make room for them. That's right, right? Isn't that what you talked about? That, that, that's very accurate. Um, and there's competition for what you're adhering to. And then also like in the gut. So let's take our friend E. coli. So when you grow it in a lab in a nice warm beaker full of nice warm broth, it divides in 20 minutes. Inside the gut, it's at least 24 hours. It's really tough slugging because there's so many other bugs competing for it. It's just a paste of microbes. So it's actually, we tend to think, oh, a nice warm gut, you know, it's, it's a great place. It turns out it's already full. And as I tell my students that come into lecture, it's kind of the lecture um, theater is full. There's no place to sit down. If you take an antibody, you can clear out half the students, then there's lots of places these pathogens can jump in and sit down. So it is tough slugging. It's hard to get in the gut because there's so many bugs there already. We tend not to think like that. So, you know, if you're going to get some to adhere, you kind of have to make some seats so they can sit down and get settled. You also mentioned that probiotics have a powerful effect on supporting our detox pathways. And I'm wondering, do they play a role in helping us break down pollutants? They play a huge role. They also play a role in the environment. I mean, you know, think about oil spills. I mean, the microbes break down all that oil. And, and um, yeah, I mean, microbes, they're just chemical machines uh, that, that are very good at breaking down, you know, molecules. And if uh, environmental pollutants are just molecules to, to them, and they just, hey, this is a carbon source, and they break it down. So, yeah, they, they can sort of detoxify it that way and... Um, um, yeah, so I have not seen any probiotic you take particularly for, you know, environmental contaminants, but, but I think the concept right. is there. And, and this goes back to just the whole, what's a healthy ecosystem? I mean, the Amazon, we know the more species, the better kind of thing. And I think that applies to the gut too, that more species of microbes you have, it's a more diverse ecosystem. You have a better chance of having microbes there that could break down that particular compound should it get into your gut and they would then metabolize it for you. So... So that's why you kind of want to have a, a good ecosystem of your bugs. Other than what you've already mentioned, are there other ways that we can help support microbial diversity, getting more diverse bugs in our gut? Yeah, so we've talked about some of them, of course, and I think diet is, is a big one. I think we tend to underestimate environment too. I mean, you know, just being outside, you think of how we live these days. I mean, we're in you know, a sterile cubicle in front of a screen. I mean, that's not, that's not how our ancestors were living. You know, they were wandering around outside, sleeping in the dirt with the animals. And I, I worry about how our quote, modern lifestyle is so, so detached from microbial exposure. I think, you know, that, that we know that really impacts kids and things and not getting the, the microbes in that sense. So I think, you know, going outside and 
having a dog in the house, for example, what does a dog do? Goes outside, rolls around, gets dirty, comes in, licks everyone, dumps the dirt everywhere. The kids lick the dog and slobbers all over you. This is a terrific way of getting outside microbes into you, actually. And our studies and others have shown that we can tell who's got a dog in the house based on the, the, the identification in the kid's feces of basically dog microbes because the dog brought them in kind of thing. So, so yeah, they're, they're those kind of things. Um, I think really thinking hard about if you're using antibiotics, now sometimes you need them and they're, if it's a life-threatening disease, for sure use them, but don't take antibiotics. I've got a cold, it's viral, but I'll take antibiotics anyway. They can't hurt. I think we're now realizing they can hurt and antibiotics do a really bad number on your microbes. They kill, I'd say they carpet bomb the microbes. So they don't just kill the one that's causing the problem. They kill everything else around there too. So, um, you know, decrease antibiotics. And um, so, yeah, just generally, I think, rethink how you live incorporating your microbes into those thoughts. And there's many day-to-day -day things you can do that, that will actually help give you a more beneficial composition that should in theory help you in the long run. Based on your research, is there a current strategy to help folks, you know, take or not take probiotics after or during antibiotic therapy? You know, it's surprising. I, I, I keep trying to get infectious diseases doctors and students interested in this because I think there, there's a huge thing. So if you have to take antibiotics, let's say you have an infection, you really need the antibiotics, you take them, it screws up your microbes, but then they go back to kind of just about where they were before. One, one course is not too bad, but then you have to take a second course for some of the reasons. They get further and further away. And basically the more courses of antibiotics you take, the further away from normal you get. And then in terms of repair, we have very few tools. I mean, there's those probiotics I said about for antibiotic associated diarrhea. I think it's the old fashioned ways of diet and just trying to, um, you know, just establish your microbes as best you can back to normal. Um, but no, unfortunately, there's no magic pill. And I, and I truly wish there were because antibiotics are a wonderful drug, but they also do have significant side effects on the microbiome. I mean, increased use of antibiotics causes increased rates of asthma, diabetes, obesity, you know, you, you name it. Um, Alzheimer's being associated with antibiotic use. I mean, you name it. So yeah, use them wisely. We are being told to take probiotics while we take antibiotics. Now, there is there any science behind that? Um, there's a little bit for, like I said, for antibiotic associated diarrhea as a side effect, it decreases that. But if you take an antibiotic, if I take this one bifidobacterium, would I now make my microbes completely normal again? There's no data for that. Um, they, they, don't, they don't really seem to do much in that sense. We don't have a magic pill that contains, I don't know, 15 microbes, gut microbes. You take an antibiotic, you take this after to the recolonize. So unfortunately, you're left with you know, what you eat and ingesting microbes in your mouth and hugging and kissing your spouse or whatever, trying to acquire more microbes that way. You also talk about a healthy microbiome supporting healthy weight management and blood sugar issues. Yeah, I think this is a great topic because I think it takes us in the whole concept of personalized medicine and personalized diets. Um, so yeah, they play a big role. And we know that you know if you do a fecal transfer from obese mouths, you can transfer obesity to thin mice and um, vice versa. They play a big role in that. And as you know, obesity is really a precursor to type two diabetes. And that's the big epidemic in our society is the obesity, the, the insulin resistance, which then leads to diabetes. Um, so a major cause of this are what we call glucose spikes. And basically these are bad. You don't want a lot of glucose spikes happening. So um, there was a group of Israeli researchers that, that did a big study where they made people wear glucose monitors and then just monitored everything they ate and their microbes. And then they 
sequenced all their microbes and they plugged it in a computer and used artificial intelligence to basically come up with an algorithm that would then correlate particular microbes with particular glucose spikes. And then, and so some foods that you eat might cause a glucose spike, others might not. And they then took this further and eventually formed a company, it's called day2.com, D-A-Y-T-W-O. And this is a really cool company because you basically send them a sample of your feces, they analyze that, they do a, di um, a dietitian type study. And based on that, you'll get an app on your phone that you could then plug in what food you're eating and it will tell you a score of whether that's gonna cause a glucose spike or not. And, um, and bottom line, it works beautiful. And it, it's a terrific way of, of, of avoiding these glucose spikes if you follow these things. And you also get weight loss out of it. And they just have a paper coming out, I think next week, um, showing it works really well for pre-diabetics. They compared this personalized medicine microbiome to the, to the Mediterranean diet, which is the classic diet for this. And it just blew the Mediterranean diet away. It just really decreased all the glucose spikes and worked really, really well. So I, I think that's the future of dieting, really. You and I have different microbes, and I'm sure you and I could eat, you know, could eat the same thing, and one would cause a glucose spike, and one of us wouldn't the other. We know some people can eat ice cream and never gain weight, and other people just look at it and gain weight kind of thing. You know, maybe it's because of the difference in the microbes. So the idea of, of getting your, your microbes analyzed personally and then telling you what you should and shouldn't eat, all the studies that's been done by independent groups around the world now are showing that this actually works. And it's a personalized diet in a sense based on the microbes and it works really well. So I think there's a huge future there for, as you say, this major problem in our society. I am familiar with day two. I actually took their program. I'm also familiar with Viome. I did both of those. And I really like the day two better because it was based on that original Israeli research, which is pretty profound. And, yeah, uh, it's being replicated in Oxford and Stanford and Mayo Clinic, several other studies. But the whole interesting thing that I can't get a good straight answer for is, okay, if you're supposed to eat all these foods, you start eating these foods, that's going to shift your microbes. Then what? Like you've now gone to what they so now you've shifted your microbes, should you get, they get reanalyzed or what's it going to tell you then, which is kind of what you saw with bio. So, so that's the elephant in the room that I have not seen a good answer to yet. But all the studies show that day two, if you're going to do go that route, that's the way to go from what I've seen. So when you change your microbiome with food, say seasonal food, you're actually changing the surface level of the microbes, but the core level of your microbiome always stays the same. Is that true? But yeah, sort of. Yes, um, you're correct. But I think the whole problem with this field is we're thinking about microbes and we should be thinking about what they do, which instead of, you know, having X number of microbes in your gut, you need 10,000 biochemical reactions to happen. And it doesn't matter where my, whether microbe A or microbe B is needed to do this, as long as it gets happens, it doesn't matter. And I think that's where we're having problems right now because the field is full of us microbiologists. We screwed things up. So we want to put microbe names on everything. Ones you can't pronounce is even better. Um, so, you know, I think if we think of in terms of, you know, what's, what, what molecules they're making and what, what are they functionally doing biochemically, then it actually simplifies what they're doing. And that's why you can have such a diverse microbiome, yet, um, you know, basically the same function. I mean, if you believe in biology that important things are conserved, which most biologists believe that, then why the heck do each of them have different microbes? We should conserve them, right? And so I justify this by saying, well, we're different microbes, but they're all doing the same thing. And so you can have these biochemical pathways. And as long as it's covered, it doesn't matter which microbe it is. So that's how I justify it in my own mind anyway. So can you tell us like how important breastfeeding is, vaginal birth is, 
with regard to the to the microbiome and what if you weren't breastfed you know or you had a cesarean section you know are there any studies on the, the long-term implications of that well another book i wrote let them eat dirt was all about that how to have your kid what happens we discussed these exact things so yes ideally um for example, being born vaginally, you have a 25% less chance of getting asthma, about 30% less chance of getting obesity. That's because the early life microbes you pick up on the way out compared to a C-section. Um, breastfeeding, same kind of numbers for asthma and obesity kind of thing. So you wanna do those things, but 10% of women have to have C-sections medically, 25% um, or so actually do by, by choice and things. Um, so, so the question is, how do you repair your microbes in this sense? And this, again, I mean, there's many people that are functioning in this world just fine that were born by C-section. They were fed formula. Yet they're just perfectly, perfectly healthy people, right? So it's not, it's not certain doom. That said, we know the early life microbes affect how the immune system develops, which leads to asthma and allergies kind of thing and the obesity type setup. So what you want to do if you, if you are born that way or you can't breastfeed is you want to think about, well, how can I supplement these microbes in other ways, such as the dog in the house, such as changes in diet, such as you know, um, I don't know, kissing your kid on the lips or something kind of thing to, to transmit the microbes. Breastfeeding is important because um, we all know it transmits the maternal antibodies to the kid. Well, it turns out it also transmits microbes. And these are microbes that break down breast milk. So ironically, with breastfeeding, not only are you getting the breast milk nutrients, you're getting the microbes that actually do this. Um, the other reason you want to have a vaginal delivery as possible. This is a great way of getting vaginal and fecal microbes. And ironically, it's gross as heck, but that first dose you take of these microbes is really important for getting the microbes that you need as you grow. And again, the, the vaginal and fecal microbes are really good at breaking down breast milk. And so these are the ones you want to get constant. Um, so during a C-section, if they swab the baby, uh, with the vaginal fluid, does that work just as good? Well, what we don't know is the long-term studies. So um, the reason you want to do that is like three to five years out, you'll start to see asthma and obesity, but you can't see that before that. So we got to wait for that time. Yes, we can recolonize them. You got to be careful because there are things like called something called group B streptococcus, which is in some women and it can cause a life-threatening infection in young kids. So you want to be tested for that, make sure it's not there if you're going to do this swabbing. And many midwives do this. But what we have not seen yet is the long-term studies to show this actually works in terms of decreasing asthma obesity, just because we haven't waited the five years yet to see those results. They're underway, but we don't know the results yet. There's a new probiotic that a lot of people are talking about called Acromancia for blood sugar. Can you comment on whether that actually really works or not? Yeah, so I know Acromancia very well. Uh, it, it was hyped as the next super bug. It actually degrades mucus, which then actually seems to thicken your mucus layer. And it seems to be great for things like IBD and stuff, inflammatory bowel disease. Ironically, every brain disease, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, MS, these things have high levels of acromancia if you have the disease. And we're working in this area quite a bit in Parkinson's. And you actually don't want acromancia in that sense. We don't know why. But now we're realizing is there's, it used to be there's only one acromancia. Now, of course, there's many different kinds. And the question is which acromancias are good and bad and things. So we actually wrote a review a few years ago called, um, you know, Acromancia, good bug or bad bug kind of thing, because there, there's two sides to it sort of thing. And so, yes, I, I've heard of it. I think, again, it's, we just, 
you know, got to know what strain we're talking about. You know, what does this one particular microbe do? Because there's many different kinds of acromancy which we didn't know before. And um, but in terms of intestinal disease, it seems very, very promising in other diseases. But like I say, brain diseases, um, it seems to be the number one candidate to predicting that disease in a sense. So two sides of the coin. You also mentioned that probiotics can actually boost your fitness level, your strength and your endurance. And I was really surprised by that. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, I'm still <laughs> on that. But that's what the studies are starting to show. I mean, they did these studies about like, you know, you can, it, they did some studies when you would swim animals to exhaustion in, in like rats and things in these water chambers uh, that depending on the microbes, some would swim some better than others. And then uh, the germ-free that had no microbes, they exhausted by far quicker and they just gave up much earlier in terms of swimming than those with that. Um, yeah, I think we're still at the early days in terms of how they really affect, you know, muscle physiology. Um, they affect bones, they affect calcium absorption, you know, sarcopenia and things. And um, th th there's some quite interesting data in there. So I think it's just early days of, you know, whether or not you can actually promote strength, but, but there, there's certainly, they look, they did some studies on rugby players versus non-rugby players in Ireland, professional rugby players, and showed that they seem to have a certain athletic microbiome type. Um, I joke in the book about bug doping, you know, um, you know, could you take Lance Armstrong's feces and, you know, do a fecal transfer? Would you be a better swimmer? I, I don't know. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's a really interesting area, but, but still too early to, to speak really intelligently about it again in terms of practical applications. I also talk a lot about, and I've written about the, the, the horizontal transfer of genetic material where, where genetic material from the bugs in the soil to the food transfer their genetic material to the bugs in your gut, and then they sort of epigenetically transfer that information to our genetic code and, and, and uh, alter or affect how our genes are expressed. Now, is that the right way that works? Can you explain that in more detail for me? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, you and I, unfortunately, we're, we're, we're stuck with the DNA we we're born with. There's no way we can change our DNA. You know, that's, that's us. Homo sapiens don't change DNA. Microbes think differently. They are constantly swapping genes and they're passing genes back and forth. Now, a very common example we see of this is the transfer of antimicrobial resistance. So if one microbe is resistant to an antibiotic, if you use that antibiotic, it passes this resistant gene on to many others and the others become resistant. So they have great, they got three different ways of moving genes from each other. So they're swapping genes and everything all the time. And I was just digging through my slides the other day and I found an old slide I did back in the days of Napster, which most people probably don't even know. That was a way of, of uh, basically sharing music. And I've got a picture of a, of a micro with headphones on. The idea that you could, there's this genetic gut internet inside your, your gut that you can download whatever genes you want from your neighbors kind of thing. And so bugs do this all this time. What they don't do is transfer them into us and incorporate it uh, as part of the homo sapiens genome. Viruses can do things like that, but, but, but bacteria can. But they're really adept at, at moving genes around. So that means they're evolving really quickly. And so one interesting concept is, you know, what happens if there's a pandemic as, as we're in now? Could microbes shift quickly to adapt to it to allow us to survive? And then a few generations later, our, our genes could catch up kind of thing because they are part of us and they can give us a really rapid evolution. Whereas you and I, right. you know, we're not changing our genes. That's, that's, that's all we got kind of thing. So, so lots of things to think about in terms of how they influence our genetics. The other thing is when a kid is born, um, you inherit the mother's genes but, and fathers, but you also inherit the mother's microbiome, which is a bunch of genes. 
So I, is the mother actually passing her genetic material along from her microbes into your microbes? So that's a different kind of genetic inheritance we tend to think about. Um, so very interesting thing to think about as you pass genes along, you're actually passing microbe genes along too. Okay, so the DNA never changes, but the effect of the horizontal transfer of genetic material from one bug to the next can have an epigenetic effect on how our genes are expressed. So that's exactly how it's happening, correct? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, we and many others are starting to look at the epigenetic effects of microbes and, and finding all sorts of things. There's no doubt that they could. So, you know, as you're listening to epigenetic modification, not DNA modifications, but they're changes in what, what molecules the cell is actually able to make sort of different um, signals going on in there. Yeah, there, there's no doubt. And that, that's a real burgeoning area right now. What is the effect on epigenetics and development and everything from you know brain development in utero, microbes make chemicals, they, they get into the womb, they seem to be able to affect how brain developments in utero even before the kid is born from the microbes. So yeah, again, unfortunately it's early days, don't have all the answers, but, but fascinating areas that people are starting to look into and find all sorts of interesting things. So something that you mentioned at the very beginning of our interview was that, you know, these bugs in the soil are like feelers out there and they seem to carry genetic information that's horizontally transferred into us. They carry uh, this microbiome blueprint that gets kind of inoculated inside of us. They seem to be feelers of the outside world that help tell our body how to prepare for the the, the glyphosates and the toxins and the pollutants and the stressors that are coming down the pike. Is that how it works? Yeah, it's an excellent chain of events. Um, I can't cite the studies that prove it, but I can't cite the ones that disprove it either. But that's what we're thinking. I agree. That's exactly what yeah. the common thought is, how this is working. And so everyone's not working to prove it or not. For sure, that's probably how it works. We've got to show it. So we've been talking to Dr. Brett Finley. Uh, he's the author of an amazing book called The Whole body microbiome i really love this book it's just loaded with one scientific fact after another after another um, i highly recommend you read this book and dr finlay thank you so much uh, i would love to have you back this has been a, a really inspiring interview hopefully we'll do this again thank you so much thanks for being here this recording is brought to you by Life Spa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at LifeSpa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.